We are in the fourth Sunday of what is called Advent, and Advent is simply the anticipation of the coming of Christ and preparation and uh, preparing our hearts and our lives for that, and of course this week is uh, the Christmas celebration. And Christmas is wrapped with so many traditions, uh, both inside the church and outside the church. I'm sure if we had the time uh, to take a moment and just do a shout out, what are your favorite tr- family traditions, what are your favorite foods, what are the activities that you enjoy, maybe what are some of the family traditions that you hate, that your family just does every year, even though you don't like doing it, but you just go along because it's something the family does, right? I'm sure we all have those. Uh, as I think back at uh, my childhood, Christmas Eve was the big deal in our family. Uh, that was the night of the year that as kids we look forward to, came from a big family, seven kids. And Christmas Eve service, we would head off to church, and we would uh, sit through a Christmas Eve service, patiently or impatiently. And as we walked out the doors back in the day, when I was a kid, we got a giant goodie bag, a uh, paper sack filled with what we can't do these days, almost to the top of peanuts, right, back before the good old peanut allergy days, and a little bit of Christmas candy and an orange and maybe a gift in there, and that was a highlight. And then we would get home, and we would sit around the Christmas tree waiting for Dad to get ready, And he would read from Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story. And then, as all good Christians do, we opened our gifts on Christmas Eve. Uh, That's that's what should happen in Christian homes. Uh, I I married into a different tradition, and so I won't tell you who's won that in our household. But you can guess. Christmas trees. Uh, That's about a 500-year-old tradition. Martin Luther, the, the legend goes that he's walking in the forest in Germany. Uh, And it is in the dead of winter, and he takes note. He was a bit of a contemplative type guy, and he was always looking at things and looking at nature and the beauty and pointing to God. And and he sees in the dead of winter, in the blanket of snow, and of course all the leaves are off the trees, but the evergreen life in the needles of these evergreen trees, and the symbolism of the evergreen life that God gives us, that never dies, that even in the deepest winters of our life, so even when you're in a season of darkness or blackness or, or cold of winter, that the evergreen life of Christ is always there for us, and so he did what I guess any good German would have done. He chopped the tree down and dragged it into the house, (laughs) and eventually they started putting lights on the tree, little candles that represented the light of Jesus. Twelve days of Christmas, did you know that that was a church thing? Uh, not just a crazy song that we hear on the radio, or maybe you've been at a staff party where you have, to, you have to sing it, you know, the drummer's drumming, the piper's piping, the geese are laying, the five golden rings, did you know, that's not just a, a carol on the, on the thing, it was, did, did anybody know this is a church tradition? It has to go back centuries to find this, but there was the tradition between Christmas Day and Epiphany, which is January 5th, when the wise men acknowledged Jesus as the King. Those 12 days bookended the 12 days of Christmas, and they were celebrations. Each day was a new celebration, each of the 12 days of an aspect of Jesus' life, not just His birth. Uh, The birth was a big deal in it, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the angels, but other parts of Jesus' life as well. There was one of those days where there was the feast of St. Stephen. Have any of you heard of that feasting day? A feast in honor of the first martyr in the New Testament church that gave his life for being a follower of Jesus. So 12 days of Christmas, that has some history to it as well. Advent wreaths. Again, it was a Lutheran pastor in Germany who was trying to help the kids, uh, trying to help them on two fronts, to be patient waiting for Christmas Day, but also to anticipate Christmas Day. And so as tradition goes, he just took a piece of wood, a circle, and he drilled holes in it and stuffed some candles in there, about 20 small candles and four large candles. 
And those small candles in each family could light a candle in their home and have a scripture reading or a reflection on Christ coming. And the big candles were for the weekends, the Sundays, highlighting various aspects of the Christmas story. So over the centuries, we've kind of done away with the small candles. We've replaced it with Advent uh, calendars where you open the little door every day instead of lighting a candle. But we've replaced uh, the small candles that disappeared and the four big ones remain. And then we added a fifth in the middle, the, uh, Chris, the Christ candle, that we light typically on the last Sunday of Advent or on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. And those candles, you might have heard them called different things over the years. This is not in the scripture. This is just church tradition, things we do to help us remember. So you might have heard them called different things. Sometimes they refer to different characters. The prophet candle, the Old Testament prophets. The shepherd candle, the angel candle, and the wise men's candle. So sometimes we talk about them that way. But the most traditional is to talk about them, the four major symbols of Christmas, love, joy, peace, and hope. Love, joy, peace, and hope. And so every week this year, we have been lighting a candle and focusing on one of those four themes, Jesus as our better hope, Jesus as our better peace, Jesus as our better joy, and this final weekend as we head to Christmas, Jesus as our better love. Now, you know this as well as I do, that Christmas might be the last of the Christian holidays, quote-unquote holy days, holy days, holidays, that are actually well-known in the culture at large. Easter probably is a close second. Many still know some of the Easter story beyond chocolates and bunnies. But typically, all of the other Christian holy days, which there were many in the history of the church, have been forgotten by our culture at large and, and frankly, quite forgotten in the church at large as well. But Christmas is still pretty well known on the streets. If you ask the average person, in Canada at least, they still have some idea about what that original story was about. They can bring up enough of the story. There were some uh, wise men, there were shepherds, there were angels, there was this young couple making their way. They might even remember the, the town Bethlehem, a baby was born. They might even acknowledge it was Christ and that he was supposedly God come with flesh on. It's an interesting time of year in our secular culture when you turn on the radio or you walk through the mall doing some of your shopping and you're hearing the old Christmas carols proclaiming this message again all, all across Canada and you wonder what are people thinking as they listen to those words. Uh, Carolyn and I were in South Bend in a, a Starbucks in Caresdale and on the sidewalk ahead of us, this group of four guys in matching red sweaters walked into the Starbucks, and so we're standing in the line, and they lean up against the bar, and I don't know if they ask permission to do this or not, but this men's quartet started singing Christmas carols. The place was jammed. It went silent immediately as everybody turned to listen, and the first song they sang was this, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. I mean, all the phones are out. Everybody's taping this. And then at the end, the whole place bursts into applause. And I'm wondering to myself, of all the people in this Starbucks today, how many of you actually know that story in your heart? What do you think of those words that they just sang over you? It wasn't Jingle Bells or Santa Claus is coming to town. It was joy to the world. The Lord has come. So this weekend before Christmas, we're going to talk about that love, a better love that we need, our world needs. And I want to frame the conversation around three questions. The first is this, why did Jesus come to earth? And secondly, what would motivate that decision for him to come to earth? And then finally, 
we're going to ask the question, how should we respond to that? And I want to tell you right up front where we're going today, because at the end of the service, I'm going to ask you to stand together with me, and I'm going to ask you to speak out loud with me a declaration of faith, a prayer of faith. And for the majority of you, I understand this is simply going to be a repetition, a reaffirmation of a commitment that you have made over and over and over and over again throughout your Christian life. In fact, probably on a daily basis as you crawl out of bed and you say, thank God that you took me through another night and that I'm actually alive again this morning and that I've been given another new day of life. And so thank you, Lord Jesus, that you bent yourself, humbled yourself for me, and so now I bend my knee to you, and I acknowledge my great need and your great salvation, and so thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. It's the gospel that's new every morning, and a commitment that those who walk with him for years make, but for some here this weekend, maybe you're new to the church, maybe you're asking questions about Christianity, maybe you've never heard the message of Jesus clearly, maybe no one has ever explained it to you in a way like this, so especially for you, this message is critical. Because what we're talking about today is really the core of the Christian faith. That Jesus Christ came to earth to do something for us as human beings that we humanly could not do for ourselves. That's why he came. And it's the best Christmas gift that was ever given. It is the gift of God's love. It's the gift of salvation. And so the question that I have for every man and woman and boy and girl in the room is simply this. This is the gift of God's love. It is offered to us freely. Here is the gift. Have you received it? Have you accepted this gift that God offers to you? And so that's where we're headed at the end to let you know we're going to pray together. And I would like to pray for us right now and then we'll jump in. So Lord Jesus, as we look at your word today... Uh, there is a mystery that happens that we, we don't fully understand, but your word tells us is that the, as the Holy Spirit blows into our hearts, that into a heart that was once dark, the light shines, and somehow there's a light switch that turns on in our heart for us to understand, and that's the work of the Spirit. And so, Lord, I'm asking you that even right now by your Spirit that you would speak into each one of our hearts. I pray that you would bind up the enemy and his tactics to distract, but instead, Lord, that every man and woman, boy and girl in this room would be open to hear what your spirit has to say. And Lord, for all of us, that we again could acknowledge our great need and your great salvation. And for many who maybe have never said yes to you, that today could be the day where they go, I need that message and I need to say yes to that today. So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So three key questions. First, why did Jesus come to earth? And basically, it's the so what question. So if you're talking to somebody on the street and they, they know the basics of the Christian story and all those kind of things, but what does it mean today? Sure, I get the story, I know the Mary and Joseph thing, I know the basic elements, but what difference does it make honestly? Why did Jesus come to earth to begin with? And thankfully, the Bible gives us very, very clear answers on that, very straightforward answers. And it basically boils down to this one sentence, and then I'll unpack it with some scripture, but it boils down to this, he came because we needed him. That's why he came. He came because we needed him. He came because there was a problem. He came because there was a mess. He came because some things were falling apart. That's why Jesus came. Now, interesting survey you might want to do, or maybe you don't want to do, but anyway, I'll suggest it to you. Ask people, what's the problem with the world? What's wrong with our world today? Over the coffee break at work, or maybe talking to a neighbor, a family member, but what do you think is the problem with the world? And you'll probably hear lots of problems, political problems, economic problems, relational problems, family problems. You'll hear about all different kinds of scenarios. What's the problem with the world? The one thing you probably will not hear from anybody is like, what are you talking about problem? There's no problem in the world. 
The world's perfect. No one's going to say that. Inherently, we know that we live in a fallen world, a broken world, that there is a problem with our world. And what the Bible tells us is wrong with the world and with our own individual lives is that we're living in a world structure and system that is not what it was intended to be. The world is broken. And so when you say in your heart of hearts, some circumstance, and you have this well up within you, life shouldn't be like this, the Lord agrees with you. Life shouldn't be like what we experience. It wasn't created to be like this, and ultimately in the restoration it will not be like this, but we live in this in-between. The world is broken, and so many things that we can't fix on our own, and what the scriptures tell us is at the root of these things are spiritual issues. They're spiritual issues that we cannot fix ourselves. And so Jesus came to do what we couldn't do because we have a great need because of our brokenness. And ultimately, his one great accomplishment was this. He came to reconcile us to God. He came to make the way right for us to be able to be right with our creator. And then the overflow of that is that we're able to be right with one another on the human level. But first, this reckon So the, 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 the axis of the cross. This Access is made right first with God and us, and then the horizontal that we're able to make things right with one another. Jesus, in fact, told us on many occasions, he specifically said, this is why I've come. Uh, I'll give you four or five of them. We'll just unpack John uh, 3, but there are some others. Jesus said on one occasion, I came for sick people. I came for broken people. I came for hurting people. It's in Mark 2. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. The context there is Jesus is with the wrong crowd, quote-unquote. The religious leaders are criticizing him because he's hanging out with a guy named Matthew, a tax collector, and a bunch of, quote-unquote, sinners, and he's being criticized. Why are you on the wrong side of town, Jesus? Why are, you with the wrong, why are you with those people? And he says, but that's precisely why I came. I came for broken, sick people. That's why I came. In Mark 1, he also said, I came to preach. It's an interesting story. Jesus is off praying in a desolate place, we're told. Great crowds are following him. And, and in our modern world, we'd think, that's awesome. That's what every preacher wants, is the great crowds to show up. And they're trying to get Jesus to come back and meet with the crowds. And instead, he goes, let's go somewhere else. Take me off to some of the other nearby villages so I can preach there also, because this is why I came. So he came to save sinners. He came to preach. He says, on another occasion, I came to give life. And the contrast here is his work and Satan's work. And he says in John 10, the thief, that refers to Satan. The thief's work is this. He comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. That's his great work. But I have come instead that they might have life and that they might have it to the full. Or some translations say that they might have it abundantly. That life would be overflowing. This is the kind of life I want to give you. And then finally, one more. A short guy named Zacchaeus is having a conversation with Jesus. And he says, hey, Zacchaeus, today's the day of salvation. Salvation has come to your house. And then he says this, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus himself tells us why he came. And maybe the best known scripture verse in the entire Bible, in the culture at large, is John 3.16. Uh, you will see it if you're watching professional sports. You'll see some guy holding a sign or wearing a t-shirt. Or on one occasion, I saw it literally painted across the guy's chest. John 3.16 is the cameras scan the audience. Martin Luther said John 3.16 is the Bible in one verse. You want to summarize the whole 66 books? Go to John 3.16. God so loved the world. And Jesus tells us again why he came. 
God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is why I came. I came so that you would not die. I came so that you would not perish, that you would have eternal life. Now, Gospel of John, if you don't know the context, let me just set it up. There are four accounts of Jesus' life, four biographies that open the New Testament. So if you open your Bible to the New Testament, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are four, basically, biographies written by four different guys. And can you guess what their names are? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they write from different perspectives. John writes with a very specific purpose. In fact, he tells us near the end of the book, this is why I wrote this book. His thesis statement comes in chapter 20. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. For John, believe, 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 believe was his main thesis statement. I wrote these 21 chapters so that you would believe. He uses the word believe over 80 times in this book. In 18 of 21 chapters, that theme, believe, 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 believe. And he's asking his readers, this is who Jesus said he was. Will you place your faith in him? Will you believe in him? That is what John's purpose was. And so he tells a series of stories of men and women who came to believe in Christ. In John 3, which is our context, and you're thinking, finally, he gets to his text. Yes, we're finally there. John 3, you can scan through it. We're not going to read it. He's in a conversation with a guy named Nick, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is an important man in the community. He is a religious leader. He is one of the Pharisees. And interestingly, he comes to have a conversation with Jesus. So he's curious. He's interested but he wants a private audience with Jesus, so he's still hiding a bit. He comes to him at night. He doesn't come in the daytime when the other crowds are around. He finds an evening under the cover of darkness, and he comes with questions. And Jesus answers him, and you can scan through chapter 3, and you see this conversation in the first 14 verses. He says, basically, Nick, here's the deal. If you want to see God, you're going to have to start all over again. Nicodemus, you've got to turn the clock back. And then he raises this interesting phrase that we still hear in North American dialogue, you got to get born again, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is taken back by that statement. He got, he's like, I don't understand, Lord. I'm a grown man. Obviously, it is impossible for me to go back to my mother's womb and to be born again. What are you talking about? And Jesus says, in essence, don't be silly. I'm not talking about your physical birth, and there's a reference there in verse 6 to water birth and spirit birth, water birth being our physical birth, spiritual birth being our spiritual birth by the Spirit, and there's a mystery. Verse 7, he says, the winds of the Spirit blow. They, they move in people's lives in ways that we don't understand, but as the Spirit draws us, just like you have a physical birth date that you celebrate the day you came into this world, so too you can have a spiritual birth date. The day when your eyes were open, the days when you understood, the day that you said yes to the Lord, you need to be born again, he said. But here's the main point, Nicodemus. The only way this happens is if you look to Jesus. you got to look to Jesus. And then he goes on to say, just like Moses lifted up a snake in the desert. Now, that's a really funky thing to say if you don't know what story he's referring to. And some people might, who not knowing that story, go, what are you talking about? Moses lifting up a snake in the wilderness, and, and now I'm going to look to Jesus, and what is the connection there? But Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, would have known this story. 
It's an Old Testament story. The children of Israel have come out of Egypt and slavery. They're now in the wilderness. They're wandering 40 years before the promised land. And on this occasion, they grow rebellious. They start complaining. They start griping against their earthly leader, Moses, and they start griping against their God. You brought us out here to kill us. And God sends judgment on the people, and poisonous snakes come out of the wilderness and begin to bite them. And people are dying from this venom that is now in their veins. And the Lord says to Moses, as the people turn to him in repentance, the, the people are like, okay, God, we get it. We've done wrong. We've sinned. We've rebelled. We repent of this. And so the Lord gives a solution. He says to Moses, take a staff and form a bronze serpent on this rod. Form that bronze serpent and then walk through the crowd with that staff raised up. And as people look to that serpent on that rod, they're going to be healed from these snake bites. It's a, it's a crazy story, but if you go to your doctor today, do you know what the doctor, the medical symbol is today? Have you taken notice of this? It's a snake on a staff. In North America, our doctors still acknowledge this story. Look to that staff and you'll be healed. Jesus says to Nicodemus, in the same way, now you look to me. You look to Jesus, like those people look to that snake on a staff, lift up Jesus, get Jesus lifted up. In fact, he says that's the main thing you got to do is lift up Jesus. Just put Jesus in front of people and Jesus does the drawing. We don't do the drawing, Jesus does. Get him up there, lift him up, lift up Jesus. They'll look to him and they'll be drawn to him and they will be saved. So he says, Nick, you got to look to Jesus. You got to lift your eyes. And then as you go on in those next few verses, chapter 16 or verse 16, and then on through the next few verses, note carefully what Jesus says. In verse 17, God did not send his son to condemn the world. That is critical. So many people look at the church and Christianity and God and even Jesus and saying, oh, it's just wagging this, this finger at me. They came to condemn and Jesus says, no, 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 the direct opposite. I did not come to condemn. I came to save. And verse 18 tells us why. Take note of this. The world was already condemned. Verse 18. I didn't come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. You're living in a house that is burning down around you. You're in one of those towers where the planes have hit and you're in the upper floors and the firemen are coming in. The house is burning down. It has been condemned and I am coming to rescue you. That's why I came. The world was already condemned. I'm your rescuer. And then this amazing thing, you see it in verse 19, the descriptions of the world, that the lights were out, it was darkness, it was judgment, and light came streaming into that, wor that world filled with sin and brokenness and hiddenness and fear under the cover of darkness, but light comes in and here's the crazy part. Here's the crazy part. You think people would go, woohoo, salvation has come, here's our redeemer, here's our rescuer, here's our ransom. John 3, 19, I'll, I'll, I'll put it up in the message. I like how Peterson paraphrases this is the crisis we are in. This is the crisis we are in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they weren't really interested in pleasing God. The question, why did Jesus come to earth? He came because we needed him. He came because of the mess our world is in. The hurt and the pain and the brokenness, and he came specifically because we can't fix it ourselves. These are issues that you and I do not have a human solution to. We don't need self-improvement. We don't need self-help. We don't need five steps to a better you. We need a new start. We need a new beginning. We need a new birth. 
And every person has to come to this point on their own. I can't make that choice for you. You can't make it for me or for anybody else in your life. But we come to a point where you finally say, however you word it, you basically say, I'm tired of trying to fix my life on my own. And I'm finally ready to take my hands off of it because the harder I try, it seems like the greater mess I make. And I can't do this, so Lord, I'm done. I'm giving it to you. Take my messy life, it is yours. And I'm trusting you that your promise is true, that you will pick up this life that is now laid on this altar, and you will now live your life through me, Christ in me. And we all have to come to that point. Any of you who are familiar with the 12-step recovery programs will know that every single 12-step recovery begins with this statement. Whether it's Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, any of the 12-step, step number one is I am powerless over whatever this addiction is. That that's the first step toward healing that an addict has to come to is admitting, I'm powerless. I can't beat this thing on my own. We all need to come to that point. So the second and third questions are important. I will be shorter on them, I promise you. What would motivate him? If that's why he came, if he stepped into our mess, what motivates somebody to step into somebody else's mess? Humanly speaking, we look at somebody who's made a mess of their life and we're sort of like, well, you've made your own choices, you've made your own decisions, it's your mess, you fix your mess. What would motivate him to step into the middle of our mess? And we've talked about hope and peace and joy, and this weekend we talk about his love. A kind of love that motivated Jesus is the highest form of love ever expressed, and it's different from most what, of what we call love in our day. You see, the problem with our English language is we have one word for love. Do you know what it is? We have one word for love. Do you know what that word is? Come on, help me. Love, that's the one word. It's not a trick question. You're all going, ah, he's going he's gonna to point me out. Yeah, that's right. We have one word for love, and we use love for so many different things. We love our cars. We love our kids. We love pizza and Netflix. We love our favorite sports team. We love our parents. We love our spouse. We love short sermons. We love Christmas. We love our friends. We make love to our spouses. We talk about falling into love, falling out of love. We say that love can die or that love can grow. It can fade. It can flourish. And you and I know that when we say that word love in all those various sentences that we don't mean the same thing when we use that word. And so if English is your second language, it might be confusing to you because you go, why do people say they love their spouse and they love pizza in the same sentence? Do they mean the same thing? The Greek language was much more precise. The Greeks had many different words for the nuances of love. I'll, I'll throw seven of them. There are more than this, but the seven most common are this. Eros is love of the body, and it refers to what we know in our day very, very well. Sexual attraction, physical desire. It's the urge to merge. It's erotic. We get the word, the English word, erotic, from the Greek word eros. Phileo, or phileia, is brotherly love. It's an affection. It's a platonic love. It's not physical or sexual. It's, a, it's the love between siblings. It's a love between uh, distant relatives. It's not sexual. It's a love between brother to brother, comrades in arms. It's literally called brotherly love, Philadelphia. It's the love that we share one another that's non-sensual, non-sexual. It can be affectionate, 
but it's brotherly love. Storge is a specific love of parents to children. It's family love. It's an amazing thing. You wait for nine months for that baby to be born, and when that little person arrives, it doesn't matter what that person looks like, you immediately are filled with love overwhelmed with parental, maternal and paternal love that is non-conditional. You love that child. You will do anything and everything. That is storge love. And then there's agape, which we're going to talk about. Agape is a very distinct love. It is a self-sacrificing love. It's like I step into your mess. I lay my life down. I will give my life for you. I will sacrifice. There's ludus, which is playful love. We would call it in, in our day puppy love. It's flirtatious, it's teasing, it's that uh, butterflies in my tummy, it's that early, we might call it immature love, puppy love. I've got a crush on somebody. The opposite is pragma, and we get the English word pragmatic, it works. It refers to long-lasting love. It's evident in couples, and there's some of them sitting in this room, we've been married 40 and 50 and 60 years, who are still, I bumped into a couple afterwards, 45 years old, walking down the hallway, still holding hands. Why are you still holding hands after 45 years? Pragma love. It's grown deep and balanced. And then there is philatia, self-love self-worth and self-esteem. The Greeks placed a big emphasis on the need for a healthy self-image. Now, taken to an extreme, self-love is very destructive. It ends up in narcissism and arrogance and pride, but a healthy self-image and self-knowledge is foundational for all of our human relationships. So, they had at least seven words and others. Now, what's interesting, all of those words used in Greek literature, but what's interesting is in secular Greek, you almost never come across the word agape. In secular literature, the Greeks very rarely use that self-sacrificing word. The New Testament is just the opposite. In the New Testament, our English has that one word, love, 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 for these Greek words. The vast majority of them are for agape, a selfless love, a love that lays its life down. There's a couple references to Philadelphia, brotherly love, platonic love. There's a couple references to storge, maternal love, paternal love. I cared for you like a mother caring for a child. I cared for you like a father and a son in the faith, the storge type love. But the vast majority, like 90 plus percent of every time you read love in the New Testament is agape. It's an important word. It is a better love than any earthly expression, anything that we have seen or experienced on the human level. It is a rich expression of self-giving and sacrificing, pursuing and never giving up. Let me just demonstrate it for you with three passages that so clearly say this is how God demonstrates his love. Uh, 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. This is how we know what agape is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us. Like, think that through. He died for us. He died a death he did not deserve to die. He died our death in our place. He took our sin on him. He stepped into our mess. This is love. He stepped into our mess. 1 John 4, this is love. It was read earlier to us by Brian. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. See, he pursued us. It wasn't that he responded to us. We responded to him. He loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. And then John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay one's life down for one's friends. You see, love was a big deal to Jesus. In fact, he said that the one commandment could fulfill all of the Old Testament law. Those two commandments, 613 from the Old Testament, if you just followed two things, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
and love your neighbor as yourself, you will fulfill the entire law. That's a pretty amazing statement. That if we could get good at loving God and good at loving one another, we could throw the Old Testament away because Jesus said you would just automatically fulfill it. You wouldn't have to worry about the rules and regulations. Just love one another. Jesus said this in Luke 6, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. He says, big deal. Anybody can love people who love them. Anybody can love someone who reaches out to you. It's tit for tat. You treat me well, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You love me, I'll love you. That's how our world operates. Anybody can live like that. But God's love is different. And in John 13, he said, this will set apart the family of God. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples. Everyone will know you're sons and daughters of the high king if you love one another. It's our greatest apologetic in the world that we live in today. Francis Schaeffer is a name, maybe it's familiar to you, maybe not. He died 36 years ago. But if you do any reading in theology or philosophy, you've probably stumbled across a Francis Schaeffer quote somewhere in your studies. Uh, he and his wife, Edith, established a retreat center, a theology study home, a commune-type place in Switzerland. They could house 20 to 30 guests at any given time, and they just welcome people literally from around the world to come and live with them and to talk about art and theology and philosophy and how should we live our lives as Christians. And he wrote about a thing called what he called the final apologetic. The final apologetic. Now, apologetic simply means to make an argument for your rational reason why you believe something. And in our day, Christian apologetics has sometimes boiled down to who has the biggest brain. Who's got the greatest intellect? And so we go to debates where they'll put an atheist on the stage against a theist. And, and we sit and we watch because we want to see who's going to win the argument. But Schaefer said, you know, maybe it's a different ethic. The final apologetic will be our love and our trying to win people. And in his books, a couple quotes, he said, The world has a right to look upon us and make a judgment. We're told by Jesus that as we love one another, the world will judge not only whether we are his disciples, but whether the Father sent the Son. The truth of the Scripture is judged by how we love one another. And in another book, he said this, unless true Christians show observable love to each other, Christ says the world can't be expected to listen even when we give the proper answers. So having all the proper answers isn't enough, Schaefer's saying. We've got to demonstrate love. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his son, Jesus. God's love is better than any earthly love. It is a self-sacrificing, self-giving, self-effacing love. And Jesus is God's greatest argument for his love given to each one of us. This is what motivated. He came because we needed him. He came motivated by his love. And so the most important question as we wrap it up, on a Christmas weekend in December 2019, is what should our response to this kind of love be? And in John 3, we already read, we saw the response of others, many. It was crazy. They ran away from him. It's almost crazy. You're living in darkness. A light is shone. And instead of running to the light, you run to the darkness. It just sounds, it sounds stupid, you know, when you read it. You're going, who would do this? You would, you're living in darkness and a light is coming and you run away from the light? Don't you want to get out of darkness? And so each one of you, I need to ask this question, what have you done with Jesus? In December 2019, we've talked about hope and peace and joy that Jesus brings. And today we talk about 
his love for us, this motivation that he came to fix the mess that we're in. And the, the question is really quite simple. The gift is offered to all of us freely. Does the story make sense to you? Do you understand it? Our lives were a mess. The world is a mess. The world is falling down. It's condemned. Our own personal lives, we know, have so much mess in them and brokenness. Our own actions, our own choices, and we can't fix most of that mess. And so God took it on himself to step into human history and to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. This is the crux of the gospel message. We can't merit it, earn it. We can't do it ourselves. So Jesus does something that we can't do, and then he turns to us and he offers us life. He says, you can step out of darkness into light. I want to set you free. And so my simple question to you today is, will you say yes today? Will you say yes every day from this day forward? So many of you who have walked with the Lord for years say, this is my daily practice. I have said yes to Jesus from this first time, and I remember this decision I first made. And every day, as much as I remember, I'm like, yes, Lord, I'm yours. I've taken my hands off. I've surrendered to you, Lord. I can't live my life on my own, so I'm trying to live it through your strength, and that has been your daily commitment. And so in a couple moments, I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and literally, we are going to speak out a verbal declaration of faith. And if you're here and you're saying, you know what, I'm not ready to do that, that's perfectly fine. You don't need to speak this out, but I'm going to invite you to. But just listen in if you're not ready. But also, it can be an incredibly powerful and life-changing event. And so for many of you, it is simply this reaffirmation. But I know that in an audience the size of this, that there are many who have not yet said yes to Jesus for whatever reason. Maybe you've never heard the invitation. Maybe you never knew why he actually came. You didn't know what motivated him. You didn't know that it was your need. You didn't know that you couldn't fix your own problems. It's never been clearly said. And this is where the mystery comes in. Because unless the Spirit of God in your heart is telling you that this is true, this message will run off your back like water off a duck. But some of you sitting here are in your heart knowing, no, this is true. And I've never said yes to him, and I need to say yes. So I'm going to invite you to do that with me. So let's stand together, and we're going to repeat just good and loud. I'm going to say a few words. You're going to say them back to me good and loud. You're saying them to the Lord, not to me. And then we'll close in a word of prayer and a carol, and we'll be on our way. So would you say these words with me? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to earth, died for my sins, and offer me the gift of life. Today I want to say yes to your plans for my life. I turn away from my sin, and I turn towards you. I want to obey you. I want to hear your voice. I want to follow you. And so today, I make this declaration of faith for everyone to hear. So you hear it, Lord. So I hear it. So the people around me hear it. Jesus Christ is my Lord. I belong to him. I will follow him. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray for us. I know that for many in this room, maybe even the majority, that is a commitment that they have made over and over again many, many times. For some of them, it's literally decades old, and yet it is fresh every day. It's fresh every day as we realize that there's absolutely no way we can live the life you've called us to live on our own. We're powerless. We can't do it. We desperately need the power of the gospel. And so, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that you enable us when we surrender to you, when we take our hands off, that you do take the wheel, that you are in charge, you are in control, and so we celebrate that. 
But Lord, I also pray for men and women and boys and girls in this room who may be on this December Sunday. It was the first time that they understood it in this way and the first time that they verbally said yes to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would seal that decision by your Holy Spirit, that it would not be snatched away from them, that you would seal it into their hearts, that it would take root, that they would grow deeply and quickly into the things of God. I pray that the Word of God would come alive to them. I pray that good Christian community would surround them. And, Lord, I look forward as we hear the stories in the months and the years ahead of people who said, you know what, it was in Christmas of 2019 when I finally said yes to Jesus. May that be our story here this weekend, Lord, and we bless you for your honor and your glory in Jesus' name.